Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 50 and marks our one-year anniversary of the podcast. Thusly, I am joined by my first guest, Kevin Crickst, producer, who is responsible for such TV shows as Michael Every Day, Sensitive Skin, as well as the film Closet Monster, and a lot of other films. Also joining us is frequent guest Mark Weingust, and Mark brought along one of our most fascinating guests we've ever had in the show, his father Fred, who is the son of a Holocaust survivor. And we sat down to watch a film together. All right, so uh, we're watching Schindler's List. I'm Jeremy. I have never seen this film. My name is Mark. I've seen this film a few times. My name is Fred, and I've never seen this film. My name is Kevin, and I've seen this film once. And how, so when you said you haven't seen it since when, Kevin? I saw it shortly after it was released. I think uh, coming from a Jewish family, it was required viewing by my father. He's like, right. you have to see this movie. Yeah, but uh, now, I, it's been a long time. And you were wondering when it came out. And I said '93, but the other, the other, do you know the other special thing about it coming out '93 from Spielberg? Wasn't that around Stephen Private Ryan? It, no, no, it's literally the same year he also released Jurassic Park. No, both of them came out in the same year. Are you serious? The opposite ends of the year, but the same amount came out in the same How long calendar Because Jurassic Park stayed in theaters for a year. Well, Jurassic Park would have been shot before, but the technology, the, the, all the effects took a lot longer. So he made this in the, like... In the in-between, yeah. yeah. He, made, he went from Jurassic Park to making Schindler's List. And the story goes that as he was making Schindler's List, like, he had a satellite set up between Onset in Poland and ILM wow. in California yeah, to go over the effects yeah. editing the film. It's so funny, because I would say that, you know... From a film history perspective, they're both required viewing. Like, but very different ends of the spectrum. You yeah. can imagine that probably. I mean, having never seen this, I assume that this would be the case. But that it's probably helpful for him working on Jurassic Park at the same time because there's some levity that he could kind of pull himself away and dive into that a little bit to just to keep it from being wow. yeah. like by too, day shooting. That's so crazy. Shooting this intense drama, and then by night shooting this effects heavy popcorn movie. Yeah. <laughs> And Fred, you've never seen this. That is right. Uh, but the other special thing about you at this screening, other than being Mark's father, uh, we've had bring your, your your children to screenings before. So this is our first bring your dad to, to That's film. That's awesome. Podcast. Yeah, you know, it's this new thing. It's once a year, bring your dad to work thing. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> uh, but you're the child of... I'm a child of a survivor. Actually, we've got uh, four totally different stories in my family. My father was a survivor uh, through the death camps in Poland. My grandfather um, fought in the French army and was pretty well captured on the first day of the war. So he was a hidden Jew in a prisoner of war camp. And there was a case one time where all of his comrades said, we're not giving him up because they were trying to separate the Jewish French soldiers from the rest of them and ship them off somewhere. Right. And uh, the entire group that he was with just said, no, if he goes, we go. So we're all Jews together, and that's what saved my grandfather. That's incredible. That's my amazing. My and this is on my mother's side. So my grandfather never knew his daughter. Uh, she, he, his second daughter. His second daughter, my aunt. Never knew him, uh, uh, never knew her until after the war, six years later. Oh, he wow. met her for the first time. And my mother and 
the sister who was born during the war, were both hidden children out in Normandy. So they were raised Christian for the duration of the war, and my grandmother was able to go back to the town where the Red Cross had taken them and bring them back. So I come from all different stories. My father never really talked about it. The only thing that I have is, again, thanks to Spielberg and his uh, Holocaust project, where he's recorded it. And the first time that I was allowed to watch my father's testimony was in the week of Shiva, after he had passed away. He did not want me to see it. That's probably oh why God. I never went to see Schindler's List. Right. I mean, but we, I knew all about it. We didn't even find it until after he passed away. Oh, I knew it was there. I knew where it was. But, uh, you know, he had told me, you're not watching this until I'm gone. Um, but I'd been involved in the community for years on the topic, because uh, when I was at U of T in the late 70s, early 80s, I was uh, an editor, co-editor of a Jewish student paper on campus. And uh, we went to Israel on a press tour in 81. And that was the first gathering of Holocaust survivors since the war. So it became an industry after that. Right. But in 1981, that was the first time that survivors from all over the world came. And maybe after the movie, I'll tell you some stories about what that experience was like. Yeah. But it was out of that I came back to Toronto and was just having studied at the U of T. So I was on uh, Professor Michael Maris's uh, course on the Holocaust. Uh, and he's written a number of books on it. So, you know, I, I studied it academically. Uh, at the school that I went to, the Hebrew school, they had forbidden teaching about the Holocaust in the early 70s. And the reason why was a majority of the kids at my Hebrew school were children of survivors. And in most mm -hmm. cases, it was not yet something that you would do where you would talk with your kids about your experience. Right. And their worry was if they started exposing this to us, at that time, what it would have done to us, what it would have done to the parents. It was just an unknown factor. They had yet to start the literature on children of survivors. So I had one very brave teacher who is always my security password, whatever they ask me, you know, who's your favorite teacher? Because she had the courage with her husband, who has now passed on, to bring in movies from the National Film Board and others. And when they set up the Super 8 projector in our classroom, she would paper over the uh, door where, you know, administration could look in. Mm -hmm. And for two weeks, we went through the horrors of the Holocaust in grade seven. Jesus. And that was our first exposure, mm -hmm. you know, because our parents wouldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And was that you were 12 at that point, roughly? I would have been just before my bar mitzvah. So I would have been uh, 12 turning 13 yeah. at the time. So... You know, I knew about it. I came back from Israel after the Holocaust Survivors Gathering. We created something called Holocaust Education Week, which now is in its 35th or 36th year in Toronto. But at the time when I started it with three other people, I was like just turning 20. And it's gone on and it started like nine programs. And now it is like a complete week sponsored by the National Post, CTV. Like they've got sponsors mm -hmm. doing this thing. And it's moved from learning about things to branching out into other topics. And from what Mark was telling me is that they actually show, after this movie was made, they've been showing this movie at they least once. They show this once. film at least once every year. At, uh, during that program. Right. I mean, this is probably considered one of the, the definitive Holocaust yeah. movies. Yeah. I mean, there are maybe there's millions. Really but because, strong ones, too. But when you, cause because you think about it, just yeah. listen to Fred's, like, there's so many stories. Yeah. And every story is life and death and the stakes are high. So you can understand why... There's an endless supply of, of these stories. Well, do you remember around. Meryl Streep 
and the one that she was in? Sophie's Choice. I haven't seen Sophie's Choice either. I'm predating. You said you were before, in it? Oh, before? Before Sophie's Choice. What was she in? Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but I know. I think I know what you're talking about. It was after Rich Man, Poor Man, and I think it was before Roots. But NBC, I think it was one of its first big miniseries, was called Holocaust. Okay, there, and this was the first time in mainstream media. So NBC Network over, I think it was like five or six nights, two hours each, was the story of the Holocaust told from different perspectives. Now, very sanitized, mm-hmm. nowhere near what I'm told is what I'm going to be seeing tonight. Um, but this was the exposure, and it was the interweaving stories of a number of families. I think James Woods was in it, Meryl Streep. I'm trying to think who else uh, was in that one. I'm sure we can Google it and, yeah, and yeah, find yeah. it. But, you know, that was sort of like the first exposure until Schindler's List came out when that became, you know, the first real major movie. Yeah. So given, you know, how, how much you studied and read about it, what kept you from watching the movie? I think it was my promise to my father. Uh, you know, uh, just although I was very involved in the community and getting... Holocaust education out there and dealing with anyone who's trying to deny the Holocaust. For whatever reason, this particular movie was one that I said, I'm not going to watch. Like, and, and I haven't. Mm-hmm. And when Mark offered me the opportunity, he says, you know what? Uh, like originally, my wife was supposed to come tonight and yeah. unfortunately she couldn't make it. I said, okay, fine. I'm going to break this moratorium tonight. And he said, there's going to be somebody here who's not Jewish who's seeing <laughs> it for the first time. I said, okay, now that's going to make an interesting back and forth yeah. discussion here. Right. So. The pressure's on me. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to find I'm going to talk about lighting and stuff. It's not, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I, I think it'll be an interesting conversation. And this would be, for this sure. is our, uh, our one year anniversary for the podcast too. That's true. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to save this one for that. So yeah. should we just dive in? Let's, Let's just dive in. Let's do it. All right. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Okay, uh, well, we're recovering. Slowly but surely. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I'll start. Give <laughs> you guys a few moments to, to gather your thoughts. Uh, so I realized, uh, right as we started uh, watching the film, that I hadn't talked about why I hadn't seen the film. Uh, I don't really have a great reason. I mean, I'm not like, I, I don't have the, the personal connection that you guys have, obviously. And I think it was just one of those movies that I knew was such a big, important movie. And it's probably one of my bigger black holes, if not mm-hmm. my biggest black hole. And it just, it was such, I knew it was such an intense movie that I didn't, there was no great time to watch it. Well, but the, the kind of ironic thing is this past week was uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um... So I mean, it couldn't have been a better time to really watch. Yeah, no, it. that I, that I found out when I was when I was looking into stuff today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just one of those ones where I was like, I don't want to just casually throw that movie on. You know, it's, well, it's one, not one does not casually throw <laughs> this movie on. Yeah, no. no, it's not a relaxing Sunday afternoon movie. That's for sure. And like the first time that they aired this on NBC, it's like Ford sponsored it to just to be commercial free the entire time they showed it. Oh, yeah. As Steven Spielberg had like a little preamble before it, like a pre-recorded message. Just like thanking Ford for doing it, uh, NBC for allowing this to be like shown on full broadcast, and it's the reason why he wanted this to be shown, like in like in its entirety, no break whatsoever. Right. Yeah, because yeah, this is. The, can you imagine cutting to like a Pepsi commercial 
in the middle of some of these scenes. Oh god, no. Like, you just can't no. break away. I mean, it's hard enough for most movies to break away in the middle of it, but this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, there's so many of those scenes that are so intense. Um, and it doesn't feel like a Spielberg film. Even no. though it very much does. Like, it's got... It do- I mean, it does and it doesn't, but, I mean, one thought that kept occurring to me is he, he really doesn't make movies like this anymore, which is so clear. The closest one was Munich, and, yeah. again, like, I wouldn't say another personal one, but one that does have to deal with, like, very heavy subject matter in terms of Jewish history. Oh, yeah, yeah but, but I do remember, because I've seen Munich, I remember when it came out, everyone called it Schindler's Light, cause it, cause just because yeah. it's definitely not as heavy as no. this film. But this is this is filmmaking at its best, I think. Yeah, it's so intense. And, and when I say that it doesn't feel like Spielberg, I don't mean that as a, as a diss, because you know he's one of our greats. It's but the it's scope just, of it. It's the scope of it for sure. But it's also just it reminds me so much of a lot of the European filmmakers and, and the approach to it. I really liked uh, how Verite a lot of the a lot of it felt. How it felt kind of documentary. It, it felt like old newsreel footage. Well, I mean, the, his specific choice to for it to be in black and white. And a lot of I was actually even paying attention to the simplicity sometimes of the filmmaking to make you feel like it truly was from that era. Like you weren't a lot of sweeping epic, you know, crane shots or even movies. It's like it was like a pan or a tilt or static. It was very much like almost reflective of, well, many of the movies we've already watched, you and I, as part of this series, like Casablanca or... Or it's a wonderful life, you know. Kind of those feels like it's from that time specifically. Yeah, well, it's a lot of masters, right? It's a lot of you're just watching things unfold, and it's just happening in real time. Not a lot of coverage, which just makes it feel all the more real and all the more tense. Especially when it gets into some of the violent moments, mm-hmm. it just makes it all the more unsettling because he's not letting you cut away. He's, he's holding you there. There are a few moments that always get me whenever I watch it. Um, it. Like the violence is always graphic, but two specific moments is during the um, liquidation of the ghetto. Ugh. The moment, the moment that Oifen Pippenchuk, which is the song that's playing, um, goes on. It just like immediately goes into my mind. I've had uh, like throughout the years when I was in Jewish day school, we would always have uh, like um. Holocaust Remembrance Day Memorial around like March, April, like near Passover. And there would always be like little skits or little things that we'd, uh, that we'd do. And to me, it's just, I never really got that emotional about it. You know, it's something that you put on for the parents, something that you put on for your grandparents. But just some of the songs that you sing just stick with you. Oh, it's funny that you mention off in Prepacek because when they finally started the first Yiddish class at the Community Hebrew Academy, the school I mentioned I went to, that was one of the first songs they taught us. They didn't teach us about its meaning or the right, other than it was an old European song. And yes, you know, I saw my son, I've seen all my children perform that song one way or another at one of the Holocaust uh, memorial events that are done. But it's it's one of the when you think when you translate the words from Yiddish to English and you know what it's about, it talks about a life that doesn't exist anymore, at least not in the way that it did, and just how it reflects day to day life before all of this happened. Mm. And 
you know, having a Yiddish teacher teaching it to a bunch of kids who are just at that point in time, and we're talking mid-70s, just discovering what their parents had gone through. Because in a lot of cases, uh, as I was growing up as a child of survivors, people didn't talk about it. In fact, when, when Holocaust came on NBC, you know, a lot of them say, oh, it wasn't like this. It wasn't like that. Oh, trust me. Oh, no, this, it wasn't like that. And that's actually how Mom found out that, um, that Zyda was in the Holocaust. Because she was watching that. And uh, he said, oh, this didn't happen. And Mom was like, how did you know? It's like, I was there. Or like, nothing like this happened. And that was the first instance that she found out. And what kind of stuff was that? Because like, I haven't seen the Holocaust. I mean, the the miniseries. What, what, what was she referring to? Oh, there were you know? a lot of interwoven stories, and there was one about a Jewish family that had gone, you know, from the heights of uh, assimilated Jews into all the way uh, to the death camps. And it, it was, what could I say? That one was glossed over. It wasn't until Schindler's List came out. That or, I, I know, actually, uh, like Shoah. Shoah was, Shoah was more of a documentary. Yeah, I would say that was a much longer documentary. Wasn't really one that the masses yeah. got into. This no, no, one, you're right about this because, like, when you get a name like Spielberg and you get a subject matter like this and you mix the two together, like, it puts it into a much brighter light for the public to to just see. Well, th- this was a work. You know, if I remember the Oscar night when uh, there was a lot of recognition for this film, he was. You know, you could tell how personal this was. And I think the year this was made was what? This came out in what uh, year? 93. 93. This came out the year I was born. Oh, wow. That's yeah. right. So it was the year you were born. Uh, and I think part, another reason why I didn't watch it is I was just starting to have kids myself. Like right. Mark was my fourth at that point. We have five today. And some of the scenes, if I was watching it as a parent... Mm-hmm. Now I'm watching it as a grandparent. Yeah. Okay, and today we just named my third grandchild. And unfortunately, my father passed away a number of years ago. But my wife's father, who's also a survivor, uh, couldn't attend, but he's with us and Mm -hmm. quite with it and has held his uh, great-granddaughter. And every grandchild that he's held and every great-grandchild that he now holds is a testament to you know, spitting back at Hitler's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of the, you know, the, the feeling that you get. I mean, there, there's another interesting story. And I don't know how much, how many documentaries you watch. Currently, yeah. I've seen... Yeah. Have you seen Donald Britton's uh, one called Memorandum? No. Okay. Mark can tell you, in fact, four of my five kids went on something called March of the Living. Have you heard of that? Mark, why don't you explain what it is? Uh, March of the Living is a program where usually high school students in about grade 11, um, but there are also other programs for um, people uh, my father's age, um, young adults, where they go to Poland for a week and they visit the death camps and they visit Krakow and they visit all these different places where Jews used to live. Um, And there are also survivors who come on the trip with you. Before you even go to Poland, there's, um, there's a... Uh, Sabbath retreat that you do and the survivors attend and they tell you their stories and you get to bond with them and in a way their stories are how you'll be able to tell them later on in life um, somebody that went on that trip with me that year passed away uh, recently um, 
um, Amic Adler. And uh, to be honest, I, I can't remember his story that well, but when you go to the camps, I went to Auschwitz, I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau, I went to Majdanek, um, I went to Treblinka, where most of our family w- uh, perished, uh, went to Belzic, where almost nobody survived because it was just a straight death camp. It's a very sobering fact to go there and just just see what it was like. And the also ironic thing, I went in 2010, and at the time, like the day after we arrived, mostly everybody on the upper level of the government passed away or died in a plane crash on their way to Russia. Mm. So the whole country was in mourning, celebrating with us. So oh, I wouldn't say celebrating, that's... No, the, mourning. <laughs> mourning. But it, it was just interesting to see... Um, the, the one main thing on March of the Living is that there's a giant march. And it, like, this is a program that takes place all over the world in terms of Europe, South America, Australia, New Zealand. Um, everyone comes together there. Everyone comes together and they march from Auschwitz, um, from Auschwitz to the Auschwitz-Birkenau site. And it, it's... it's I, I, See, I can't it, put it to words. What, what's, what's interesting is for me... The event, although it wasn't going to Poland, was going to that first gathering of Holocaust survivors in Jerusalem in 1981. Um, you have to imagine that this is a time just as computer terminals were starting. And you're in this hall, and it's 36 years after um, these events, and people are still trying to find each other. And although there were computer terminals there, what people started to do was take post-it notes and they would write down their name what camp they were in and what hotel they're in right this time right and they would say they would put it on the poland wall or the romanian wall or the whatever based on where they came from and there were reunions of people who found each other after 36 years wow now you know what mark's been through what my kids have gone through for as i said four out of five on this march of the living it's almost become, uh, I hate to say, an industry. You know, it's an important industry of taking kids back and taking other people back. You know, politicians have been taken. I think uh, Justin Trudeau was taken. I think was it two years ago. It was just done recently. Remember. I know Stephen Harper had gone. Others had gone. But what I was saying earlier about Donald Britton, who's a famous Canadian documentarian. People weren't talking about the Holocaust very much in the 60s. It, it was still a very hushed topic. I mean, if it wasn't for Eisenhower and the film crews that he sent into the camps right at the end, you wouldn't have some of the images that, you, that you've seen or that you have today. In 65, Donald Britton did something very interesting. He took a group of survivors and their children and what I would call the very first March of the Living, and this was only 20 years mm. after the liberation of the camps. It's a one-hour documentary, and you find people on trains going through whatever. One of the uh, people in that documentary was a glazier who had a store three doors down from my uh, grandfather and my mother on St. Clair Avenue. And he and his son were in this documentary. And his son goes to our synagogue. Yeah. And we've made a point uh, where we send out, the National Film Board actually made this available now online, 
So once a year, we sort of send out this URL. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to get him to speak about the experience. As an 18-year-old going back with his father, this is like the very first, let's go back to the camps, let's go back and revisit, had never been done before, had never been documented before. And that was the beginnings of talking about it. But I think when Schindler's List came out, this is when you know those who had seen the miniseries Holocaust, their parents or grandparents said, that was it. Hmm. That caught it. And it wasn't in an exploitive way. It, wasn't, it was in a realistic, you got the feeling of what it was like, of what it was like to hide, of what it was like to have been. You know, you're, you're sitting there. Are they going to be pulled back from Auschwitz by the mis, from the misdirected train? Yeah. Who is going to make the list? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, what, that's what caught me was just how matter-of-fact everything is. There was no, mm-hmm. like, like I said, like, there's no close, there's no, it's just like, something gets shot, they're just shot, it's over, it's just, you know, the, the blood, I don't know, that felt, felt the it, it, blood felt over the top a bit in some moments, but maybe it wasn't, you know, it's just, because everything else was so grounded and real, yeah. uh, but I just loved how, and it was so heart-wrenching just to watch it just be so matter-of-fact, and for them to not revel in it, and, or, or, or the sh- film to... You know, score those, overscore those moments or anything. It was just those things just happen. Mm-hmm. But you see, this is what happens when you have a society that does a systematic. This was industrialized killing. Mm. This was um, absolute organized. The trains can't just run by themselves. This had to be a massive, massive undertaking. And yes, we have genocides today. We have those types of things that are Rwanda, still going on. All of those things are still going on. But to think of, and this film didn't even touch on it, whereas Holocaust, the miniseries, did. It showed you what life was like in Germany just slightly before the Nazis came into power. And then you slowly saw how legislation and words and propaganda were used to start to dehumanize a segment of society. And you watched it go from, it's not going to happen to us, to, you know, and there were opportunities for people to leave and they didn't because they said, oh, nothing's going to happen. This is Germany. This is not going to happen. And you watch in that one, at least, everything. And then you get into this. Here, you're all, you've already started there. It started with the uh, Sabbath, you know, the uh, saying of Kiddush, the, uh, the saying of the prayer over the one on Friday night. And you had another element of that coming back later in the movie. And I thought that was a very good connection point. But as I said, this did not give you all of the levels of dehumanization that happened, Mm. all of the restrictive laws, all of the things that were forbidden were just not touched on here. The starting point here was really, it had already started. Yeah, we're coming in as as it's underway. You do get hints of that throughout. You get a little bit, there's a scene in the church when they're uh, when they first meet him, uh, when Schindler reveals himself to them, and, and most yeah. of them leave, like one get, by one, they start to get out of the theater. Yeah, because they mention how they they're, they're not selling because they're not allowed to sell things. So you get you you get little hints of it. Um, so that if you've seen other because other other films I've seen with the Holocaust do deal with that on a much grander yeah. scale. So it kind of it's almost like you watch enough of these films and you and it starts to paint the bigger picture. Because I think it's almost impossible for any of these films to yeah. be the a definitive end-all, be-all without being... There, there are some really good ones, and then there are some that are just kind of... Uh, 
how how do you put it? Like there's, there's some our life is beautiful. Some are some our life is beautiful. Yeah. Others are like the pianist. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the pianist is such a small story. Yeah, um, but it's it's so big in other ways. Yeah, you know, like I I loved um, in in here that you, you were mentioning like another example of this is is the women all kind of gossiping about what one of them had heard about they haven't had another. And that was camp. a real thing. Like there were rumors who mm-hmm. uh, constantly going around, even in the ghetto, about yeah. death camps happening. Yeah, but and, but and then they get there, and, and you don't, you know, we're sitting there going, "Oh fuck, is this it?" And then the relief they have when it's water, you know, just the way everything happens. You just you you're getting ready for that to be the gas, mm-hmm. you know. And the moment that really really killed me in that whole sequence was when they grabbed the little girl with the glasses, and pulled her away, and and then. And that was the first. That was the first real time you saw Schindler breaking, when he was calling the kids back and trying yeah. to, and trying to convince the one soldier why he needed the kids. So the the, the fingers and the forty five rounds, um, which mm-hmm. led all the way up to that great that great speech he has about this pin with one one more. I could have given the pin. And that's the other scene that always gets me. Uh, Liam Neeson does an amazing job yeah, of, he, of characterizing. This is this is his best role. I, I, I think so too. You know. You know, I always wondered where I got the, uh, and this is a really sick story, story but uh, one time my youngest son stepped on a bird and uh, we had to take it to a vet and we were talking about how much the vet bill was going to be to save the bird versus how much it would cost to buy another bird. And every time the vet bill went up and up, you know, that's five birds, that's six birds. It's, and... And I'm watching this, and I'm saying, oh, my God, did I just, at that time, do a Schindler? No, no, I couldn't. Yeah, but you know, I'd never seen that scene sure. before. I ne- and, I, yeah. and my kids maybe have been laughing at me all these years. When I, you know, and This is an ongoing joke in our family, the history of this, what happened to the bird. The bird, by the way, is still alive and living with us today. Amazing. We were able to recover it. We did pay the cost of five birds to recover this bird. Um, but they're still alive today. Yeah, but yeah, this one. That is kind of what the theme of the movie is. What is the what is the cost of human life? life? Yeah, yeah. You know, in the, in the end scene, I think uh, we have the people. You know, the it's actors the survivors and the actors. And then it wasn't until survivors. I saw Ben Kingsley that I realized that's what they were doing with the devil. I, th- I just thought it was like grandchildren or the grandchildren who were actually the actors or grandchildren who were the. No, I thought it was like just you know family members helping the older people with. You know, that, that's re- what I thought the first time too, and then and then it just clicked in me. When I saw Kingsley, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." That Kingsley's there, and then I was like, "Oh, wait a minute, that's the it all clicked." But mm-hmm. yeah. uh, when we've gone to Israel, we haven't actually seen his grave, but you are allowed to go to the Mount of Olives where he is buried. Yeah, I've never seen his grave. I think I've seen the tree. I've seen the tree. Um, I mean, we also went through. Uh, you know, they talk about Yad Vashem in 1958 recognizing him as righteous amongst the Gentile. Our family went through the process to have Yad Vashem acknowledge the family in France that had my mother and my aunt. Oh. Uh, and all the documentation. The woman one, uh, the woman and the husband, the woman was still alive as of five years ago. And we do have a photograph of her receiving her medal mm. from Yad Vashem. Uh, three of my kids have been to uh, Paris. No, what am I saying? No, for all, all, no, all of them have now been to Paris. And um, we have yet to have had the opportunity to try and go out to the farm where they still, or where they live or now their kids, one of their kids lives. 
Um, you know, we've got pictures. Uh, my mother has pictures from 1942, 1943, when she's going to church with these kids. And the other thing that I have to thank Spielberg for is the fact that he ran the Shoah project. And there wasn't for, and I, I think it happened after Schindler's List or before. Uh, Bobby and Zaidi's recordings are in uh, 95. He started doing the Shoah project, I think, right after after Schindler's after List production. Yeah, and so what he did is he went around the world and he, he tried to get as many stories as possible re, uh, recorded on VHS. All of them are now documented and in the Holocaust uh, Museum in Washington. And you can look up. So my There's mother, also an archive here at U of T. They have access. They oh, they have digital, access. Okay. Digital access to the archive that's physically in Washington. There's certain uh, schools that have that. Um, so, as I said, when my father passed away, we finally watched uh, his tape. When my aunt passed away, we watched her tape. But she and my mother were the hidden children. Um, you know, so it's thanks to Spielberg that there is an archive of stories uh, that is there today and will be there for, you know, as long as they digitize everything and move it off VHS and put it yeah. onto another medium. Let's hope they're uh, in the process of doing that. I'm sure they're in the middle of doing that right now. But it, it was a, a very important project. I remember uh, with the Holocaust Education Week, one of the first things we did in 81, 82 was we started audio recording and we were training uh, young adults to be interviewing people here in the city. And I believe that archive, or what's left of it, would be at the library at 4600 Bathurst Street. Uh, and now they're under construction of finally a proper... Holocaust Center as part of the uh, Sherman campus that's being built up at Bathurst, north of Shepherd, And so I think that'll become much more accessible than it is today once that is built. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, yeah. having you, you having seen this now and you being coming from a non-Jewish background, yeah. what your thoughts were? Because, you know, I think that would be also, uh, you know, an interesting back and forth on that because uh, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, I'm... I'm degrees removed from it, so you kind of—it's one of those things where it's kind of like. No, that's a bad analogy. I'm not going to do that. What? Not living (laughs) living vicariously through the juice? No, 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 (laughs) no. But it's just the idea that you uh, you keep on pulling yourself in and out of going because you know I I watch so many movies and I watch so much stuff and you watch and you're like this is fake. This is you know these are all actors. Is all that kind of stuff. and, and, you know, you go from watching a big science fiction movie or this or that, and then you watch something like this, you're like, and you have to keep on pulling yourself back in going, no, this is a real thing. This is what we're watching now is something that, you know, might not have happened this specific way, but it this, happened. It happened. It's real. Like we're watching something about real people. Cause I think, you know, moviegoers are so desensitized by modern movies, whether it's stuff like Games of Thrones or Walking Dead or just whatever you watch. Where people are just shot and they follow their dad, and it's just, and it's, they're just one there's of, no impact. they're just one of a blind soldier, mm-hmm. and so it's so easy just to sit back and watch a movie and go and and just kind of turn that part off of you, mm-hmm. um, and so that that's my challenge with watching something where the deaths do matter, and that's what I do like about how just how it's depicted and how it's just so matter of fact, and that to me is way more impactful than if you were overly dramatizing these moments just how it it doesn't give it like that hollywood touch yeah just how casual all the deaths are and how little they care uh and just and which makes it all the more horrific because it's not celebrated in any way 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's the kind of the journey I go on watching a movie like this and getting caught up in those moments. Uh, and and it, it, for me, it's always the small moments, like the moment with the little girl. And just what those, did you think about the red? I don't know what that, that symbolizes. Symbolizes blood of the innocent, and as well as just um, it, and because it sticks out in the movie. Because other than the opening scene or like the opening shot, uh, that's the that's the only part. Oh, sorry, and the end where there's color. In no, the there's film. color. They no, there's two because when she the was flame, flame, in the flames, the flame, they, flame color. The flames, yeah. But there were two times the the red appeared in the movie during the black and white. One was when the girl was walking there and being observed. And the other one was when she was on the cart being yeah. pulled away. Yeah, it's yeah. the you same saw girl. Twice. It's the same girl. You saw her twice, and and he sees her when she's being pulled away. Yeah, I mean, well, I like that it it because well, it did the same thing to me that I'm sure that it was meant to represent for Oscar about like fault following her amidst all this other stuff that's going on. Because there's that one moment when she's uh, running past this group of men that are like, that are standing up against a wall with guns at them. And just, I mean, the timing of it's amazing just from a filmmaking point of view. But just, just as she leaves the frame, that's, that's when the gunshot goes. She doesn't break stride either. And they all fall. And I had not been paying attention to what was going on with them at all. And so I was disoriented, and then I noticed the bodies fall because I was watching her go across the screen, which is exactly what Spielberg wants you to do. Mm-hmm. And then you go, "Oh fuck! How did I miss that? Like, what else is going on?" And it's just one of those things where you go, "What else is going on?" And then there's that great sequence um, with the gun, the guy in the gun, getting to his head. Was oh it, fuck that! That one. was one of I think. The, but no, the one I'm thinking of is when um, when there, it's it's at the end of the the Jewish ghetto raid. Where they just finally pull out back and you see the whole village in this night and and Ray finds it's like when is this gonna be over? It's like he's just tired, he wants to go to bed, you know. He's, he's exhausted by it, and then you just cut out and you see the like, the little windows the lighting flashing, up. Yeah. flashing when he realizes it's going on over all over town and it's happening everywhere. No, that when they go when he goes to shoot that poor old man and none of the guns work, it's just such a moment that you almost want to laugh at because it's so ridiculous and that poor fucking guy. Mm-hmm. Who then ends up living because none of their guns worked, mm-hmm. um, and then he just got bored of trying. We, again, we just, I mean, there's that great moment with uh, with um, Ray Fiennes' character's uh, maid, where she tells that story about how he just walked down the steps and just shot a woman walking by, and and it made her realize there's no fucking rules to this. I don't know if he would kill me or why he would kill me because why did he do that? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. when he pardons the kid, but then shoots him a moment later. Oh, that well, that and that was such an because there's such an interesting relationship between those two men, where he wanted to look up to him. Like clearly, Ray Fiennes admired Schindler, and wanted to be wished he could be like that man. Like he and he, and you see him trying it on constantly. He's trying on what it feels like. To be the right. I forgive man. you. I give you. Yeah, I absolve you. I absolve he wants you. to, but or even with like the hoses or with the actual list itself, you know. Yeah, the, but the way he loves, like he clearly loves the his housekeeper, you know, and and wishes he could be with her, mm-hmm. you know, and and there's that moment when Schindler goes to jail overnight at one point because he kissed the girl, he kissed a Jewish girl, uh, and you know that that he, you know. Bray Fiennes' character does that to punish him because he wishes he could do that. Because mm-hmm. yeah, they do have that moment where he almost does and then he pulls, himself, he pulls back. himself back and then starts insulting her and then starts beating her. Um, 
you know. But then he, he gets to make sure she goes free too. Okay, mm-hmm. so I got to bring up like, let's go totally left field on this. Another interesting thing was how much people enjoyed a television show in the 60s, which you could never make again today. You know which one I'm talking about? Which No. Hogan's Heroes. That's, I never saw Hogan's Heroes. Oh, my God. So this is interesting because one of the um, actors in Hogan's Heroes was actually a survivor. Wow. And Colonel Clanker? No, no. LeBeau. Oh, right. LeBeau. Right. Robert Clary. Um, and I remember when that show was on and it was, you know, it's always the dumb Nazis, the dumb Nazis. And I remember my grandfather watching that show and my father watching that show. And they're all, you know, they're just, I didn't understand why they would laugh. I didn't even understand why they would watch it. But I didn't know that I didn't know at the time because yeah. it wasn't something that we had even discussed yet. I just thought it was a silly show about Nazis and uh, you know and the Americans and all the POWs. And as I said, you can't make something like that today either. And I I don't know if that is a post Schindler effect or what it was. I think not not knowing it intimately. I think the closest thing you get is like Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you've seen that. I've seen that. I really enjoyed that one. And <laughs> also, you know, it's also alternate but, history, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Fun story about Inglorious Pastures. I saw it opening day at the Promenade Mall, which is the uh, the theater right by our house. The first showing of the day, half the screening full of Holocaust survivors. Just cheering? No, 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 no. They no, they enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. They enjoyed it. But it was just more. It, it was just really interesting to see twelve thirty first showing of the day. Me, me, and my friends, and also half the theater are just Holocaust survivors. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you could just do an interesting talk just on all of these variations of what's going on. I mean, I'm not even touching on Star Trek's approaches to it. You know what happens when a world uh, takes over and how. You know, and they've done that in, in a number of the different incarnations of Star Trek as well. It's also been a science fiction element and changing of timelines and what would have happened if the Germans had won and all those kinds of well, things. That's also yeah. Philip K. Dick, right? Um, Man, Man in the High, High Castle. Castle. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I want to bring you into this. What did you think, having seen this like years and years and years ago, revisiting yeah. this? I mean, I think when I first saw it, even though I, I believed I had an understanding of it as a child, I must have seen, how old was I, in 93... I probably didn't see it in 93, to be fair, but, you know, I would have been almost 10. Yeah. And and watching that film and really understanding the nuance of the film, but the meaning of the film and and, and the power and intensity of it, you don't quite grasp that at that young of an age. I think you you kind of get... Expl- I probably was explained the deeper meanings of what really happened. It was an education back then and now. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. So, what, what did you walk away with then? Do that you remember from seeing it then? Um, it's funny because you mentioned the girl, the red coat, but that's like that's the image that always stuck in my head years years later. I always imagined her to be in it more for whatever reason, just my memory of it. Um, Probably because that's what we, we, we that's what, yeah. To, yeah. But I, I I I just remembered the basic premise of it. Um, him sit, how he had a factory and he was able to save. I actually didn't remember it was that many lives. Well, and then you just like there's the the great Ben Kingsley line about you know one you save one life and you save the which world. is that which is from, from the Talmud. Talmud yeah yeah it's not Ben Kingsley's line he stole it <laughs> sure <laughs> but it was written by a Jewish sage eons yeah, ago eons ago I know it's interesting just before any any time I, I I do one of these nights uh, my son always says what are you guys watching 
And I told him we were watching Schindler's List, and he says, what's that? I said, what's a Spielberg movie? And he loves Spielberg. He says, well, can I, can I come out and watch it? He's like, well, first of all, it's three hours long. Second of all, I don't think How old? yet. He's going to be nine soon. Too early. Too early. But then, but then I was trying to explain to him what it was about. He's like, what is, I said, well, it's about the Holocaust. And he didn't know what the Holocaust was. But he knew about World War II. He, one of our um, friends, uh, his one of his friends, his dad collects World War II memorabilia. So he'd seen the swastika and all this kind of stuff and so I just kind of gave him a really bad quick Cole's notes on on the holocaust and the war and so he was wanted to watch it even more but I was like no first of all I need to check this out for but I think it, it, I do but at the same time I'm one of those parents that don't like to shelter their kids from this kind of stuff like, I'd rather him see it and mm-hmm. have that yeah, conversation yeah. the fun thing is that uh, we own well at one time we own the VHS and First DVD copy of Schindler's List, and like they haven't even seen it. Yeah, and, like, I, it. I, I like I questioned him on the way here. It's like, wait, then why did we buy it? Then why did we have it if you haven't even seen it? I, I to first, have it, to have it, <laughs> just to say we have it. And one day, if I ever had the courage to put it on, but there was never really, a, you know, as Mark had said, you don't have three hours to kill like that. Yeah. Uh, but when Mark uh, sort of brought this forward and said, this is an interesting opportunity. Originally, as I said, my wife was supposed to be the one here tonight. She's working, and she said, you go. Um, and it was just an opportunity for that finally presented itself and to actually watch it with my son, who's been on March of the Living, uh, who knows what I've done you know, related to Holocaust education in the city. Um, I've watched that over the years, and you know, it just went from a single sheet with nine events to like a 40-page high-gloss program that, that just spreads out throughout the city on mm-hmm. uh, the first week of November. Uh, you know, it, it's just... It, it, thank you for the opportunity to at least watch it. And I thought, you know, in a quiet room, just four people, a wall, great sound. Oh, By the way, congratulations <laughs> on that. Um, no, very effective. Uh, am I sleeping tonight? I doubt it. And, and <laughs> now, do you think, um, given that you have a copy at home, your wife hasn't seen it? Is it? I'm not going to tell her. No, 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 no. There's no way that we can sit her down and watch this. No, oh. there is. There is no way that she can watch this at, at this point. Uh, we'll just have to figure out another way to do something similar to this. Yeah, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to be in a discussion with people. Yeah. Maybe you want to do a female version of this. <laughs> and But now that you've seen it, is it the kind of movie you'd want to revisit at some point? It'd be hard. It's it, hard to watch a second time. Uh, it has the to be fa- with the right people, though. Yeah, it has to be with the right so, people. It has to be the right, like doing the right thing. To me, I thought this is a great opportunity to really see how I would react or two people react who had never seen it before but yeah. you know, read about it. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, having studied it uh, at university, having been part of that illicit class in grade seven for two weeks when we were, all we were getting were, and we're talking, this teacher brought in stuff, there weren't that many films available. So what she brought in was the original footage, you know, the, the Eisenhower footage and stuff that she could get her hands on at oh, the wow. NFB. Uh, Ellie Wiesel's Night in Fog, there was another, that was one. Night in Fog, I've yeah. seen, yeah. Yeah, uh, right now, um, Ellie Wiesel Night, that, the book Night. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and I remember every day it was another film. You know, it was like one of the, the craziest things. Because, again, the administration in our school said, no, we are not teaching the Holocaust. There's going to be too much of an impact. Uh, you know, half, no, half the kids yeah. were from parents who lived in Canada, had never experienced the Holocaust. 
and then you've got the other half of the kids who you know, they didn't know how to deal with the psycho- you know, psychological damage or parents who were still experiencing that. And then it was reflecting the kids. And then in turn, it could have reflected in behavior. Mm-hmm. No one knew at that time what the impact was. It wasn't until I think it was Helen Epstein wrote the, sto- the book on uh, children of survivors where it started to become codified where people said, oh, I've seen this behavior. I've seen this kind of thing. The the funniest story uh, was when my brother-in-law and my wife's father, do you remember the story when they they went? They were going to to go to ski in Switzerland. But to get to Switzerland, you actually had to land in... Berlin. No, not Berlin. No. Not Munich. Oh, right. You had to land in Munich. And they rented a car and they're driving southwards. And if you've ever been in Munich, I have. Um, what's interesting is all the, the road direction signs are in blue, except for one direction. And that's the direction to Dachau. Dachau's in yellow. And as my brother-in-law was driving with my father-in-law and uh, my mother-in-law, they were heading towards Switzerland, they see one of these Dachau signs. And I said, hey, Dad, you want to go to Dachau? No. Been there already, and that was the first time we even knew wow. where he where where he was liberated. We had no idea until that trip. And he's he's done the the Shoah tape. He's he's been recorded, but we haven't found his story, and he refuses to let us hear it until he's gone. Until he's gone, like, we have bits and smatterings from according to my mom, but we don't know the entire story. Right, and it is the entire story when you hear it told, and and I mean at my father's funeral. Um, this was something as I was uh, cleaning up the basement at the house that my parents lived in for 47 years before my father ended up at uh, Baycrest and eventually he passed away. Um, I found all of his various notes and one of the sets of notes that I found besides diaries and other things that he wrote, um, were his notes that he wrote for the Spielberg interview. And there was sort of like this, uh, there was the sort of an opening statement type of thing. And then there was all of the interview part where you, you sort of go back and forth he had written such a tight summary of his life from the time he was a young child through to liberation. That's all I, I read at the funeral as his, as they call it, the hespit. I read what he wrote. And I said, you know, this is probably going to be the last time you're going to hear this story. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you watch a tape or something else, you'll never hear the words of my father again. So you're going to hear them now. And I read the, uh, the four or five pages and yeah, it was quite the story. And then what happens, there's someone sitting there, you know, looking at his dad and saying, hold on a second, because I had read the story from beginning to end. And this guy's sitting there with his father and saying, wait a second, these towns sound so familiar. Did you and Fred's father do the death march together? Oh, Yeah. We take those walks all the time. No, <laughs> not quite yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. But that's when he discovered that his father and my father had actually been in the death march together. That my father's story, at least the tail end of the last year or so of it, was really his father's story as well. Oh, didn't wow. know that either. Amazing. And then his father passed away, so he didn't get... Do you, do you want to tell him who, the, uh, who that person was? It was a friend of mine, Willie Friedman. Oh. And, you know, he went through the same, you know. Oh, uh, your relationship with um, Podesla. Because he was also... Well, uh, if you know the director, Jeremy Podeswa, mm-hmm. his father and my father came across 
on the same boat back in 1948 to Canada, um, although they didn't go through the same death camp experiences, but they were both survivors. So, you know, a lot of Jeremy's directing has come through things that he had learned from his father, who was an artist, right, a painter, and uh, you know, Jeremy went in a different, you know, a different direction, but it was more the visual arts, but the same thing with the storytelling, and you see that he's done what Game of Thrones, he's done all, he's directed many different. Uh, Episodic mm-hmm. Six Feet Under, I think, was another one of his. But again, it's it's this tight knit community of survivors, and you know, to wrap up, I mean, this is this story told it. It told a particular story. Yeah, yeah the closest thing else. we have to this in, in Canada's history is the residential schools. With, mm-hmm. uh, with and I spent a lot of time with survivors of that and, and second generation survivors of that because I did uh, historical documentaries in my formative years. Um, and it, it's nowhere near, you know, the horror story of this, um, but it is the closest we have uh, in Canada. Uh, as yeah, a, and you know, it's it's the same thing. It's a systematic gathering of people. It's an attempt to, well, in the residential schools case, it was a, a more of a case of trying to remove the culture, remove the culture yeah. from them. This wasn't even a case of removing the culture; it was using the culture in order to gather the people and then get rid of them. Yeah, exactly. No, and uh, yeah, and the, the the deaths were a byproduct of that for for the residential schools. The, the intention wasn't to kill them off in in numbers, and and you know it still happened. But it was yeah, it was literally just to erase the culture. And they tried that in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then the, they would just when they were done with them, whether it worked or not, they would just leave them back. They, you know, they'd take them when they were six years old. And then when they were 16, we'll now go back, uh, but without any of your customs, any of your yeah. traditions, uh, and go back and live on the reserve. So now they don't fit there. They don't fit in with, you know, regular... Secular society. Secular mm-hmm. society. So it's like they they call the lost generation of these people that mm-hmm. they don't know. They don't even, they don't know how to hug their children. They don't know, they just don't know what it's like to be read to bed. You yeah. Know, they're beaten to sleep every night. So it's just a, uh, anyway... A different, a different thing, but for Canadians listening to this, that's kind of the close. That's that, that's our thing we did that was not great. Uh, in line with this, and, 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 and no more about it. But in that, but the, and what's interesting too, when you're talking about how, you know, that's something that happened for over a hundred years over the course of you know, and and it just happened until what, the eighties was the last residential school that was closed, and we're just starting to tell that story. Yeah. Well, we have a, a parent of a friend of ours who was the lawyer in Manitoba who brought the uh, the cases forward and became very well known in the First Nations communities there as someone who believed their stories and started to uh, help them get their stories told and fight back. Just an amazing... Uh, he needs a documentary. <laughs> this man needs a documentary because what he did was actually bring visibility to it kind of reinforces the power of education and you know how young you start to tell these stories and expose this in order to put it on the top of people's minds and let them know that these kind of things exist and have happened and you know to make sure the history doesn't repeat itself yeah because if you don't know then that's which, very- which brings us back to the scary world that we're in today yeah yeah so so final thoughts kevin final thoughts um I think, you know, for me, I, I, while not having family that, um, um, you know, had gone through the Holocaust, it's always been something that I've known 
and have been exposed to through education from a very young age. You know, my dad uh, would always show me different uh, films, this one included. Um, also went to Hebrew school, and in fact, even in public school, they they we first learned about the Holocaust in grade three. And I grew up in Thornhill, which was a very Jewish community. But you know, I remember learning about it in grade three and doing a whole unit on it and a presentation about it, and actually understanding it. I think at that age, and that's a pretty young age. And so, um, um, I think that's it's crucial to continue education especially at that young age, in order to kind of have any meaning in, for today and in the future. Yeah, I think if I ever rewatch this, it'll be with my kids. When I first watched this when I was in grade 8, so I think maybe around there should be a good time for Ephraim to, to watch it. Next week. We're going to watch it next week. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You still no. have to recover from the Super Bowl. <laughs> How are you guys? Well, I mean, I'll continue watching this. Uh, I, I can't recommend it enough to people. Uh, but it is a really tough sit. And it is something that stays with me. Um, I think the last time I saw this film was, ironically, on the bus to one of the to one of the camps uh, on March of the Living. They used it as entertainment to keep yes. you guys quiet on the yes. bus. Really? Yes. That's not a oh. movie. That's, no, it's not. That's the horrible... Especially on a bus, that's not the best environment. Not a great movie. bus movie. No, you want to know what's not a good environment? Try doing it on a German train. Yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs> Just don't. Yeah. I remember, I, I still, when I, when I went for my first trip in Germany, I was in Munich. Uh, getting on a train in Germany, had, had, it was hard. It I was bet. hard. But, so what about your final thoughts? What what do you think now? Finally, have seen having seen this. You know, I guess in one way, I wish I hadn't waited as long as I did to see this. On the other hand, as as I mentioned at the beginning, seeing it on the same day that I named, you know, I was involved in the naming of a granddaughter, which is an answer to all of this. You know, you saw at the end six thousand descendants, which was in nineteen ninety three. So you can imagine just. What 20, that more that. 20 more years yeah, of that. 20 more years of that. double, probably. probably. At least. At least. More. And, uh, yeah. So it was a full circle, circle of life type of thing. That uh, life goes on. And another generation is here. And we just have to make this play, the world a better place. In a lot of different ways. Well, that's a good note to go out on. Thanks so much, guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you for Thanks. having us. No, this is great. Thank you. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Thank you for joining us for Schindler's List. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter at Lalon Jeremy and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this bad boy. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby.